My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Hey, it's Jordan. As I sometimes do, I have a podcast for you. You may have heard Tara Jean Stevens, host of Heaven Bent on the Big Story previously. The new season of Heaven Bent just debuted, and I would love it if you checked out the first episode here in this feed. This podcast explores stories of religion and belief and the dark side that can lie underneath them. For instance, season three, in the middle of the night on June 16th, 1987, Firefighters found a mutilated body inside a burning Nashville church. Are the rumors true? Could a cult somehow be involved? And why is David Terry, the church's beloved pastor, missing? Tara Jean explores the dark and fascinating history of Emmanuel Church of Christ, a small assembly of Pentecostal churches in the southern United States. I hope you will join TJ as she explores this mystery and takes you through another startling discovery. You can listen to the first episode right here, right now. You can listen to the rest of Heaven Bent for free wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to listen to the whole season early, ad-free, you can go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe to Heaven Bent Plus. Either way, for now, just enjoy episode one and we'll see if you get hooked. This season will include the graphic details of a murder and stories of religious and spiritual trauma. Listener discretion is advised. It's the morning of June 16th, 1987, Nashville, Tennessee. Shortly after midnight, firefighters are called to a blaze at a church on the east side of town. When they arrive, Emmanuel Church of Christ Oneness Pentecostal is fully engulfed in flames. And the congregation's beloved pastor, David Terry, is missing. Once inside, the building still smoldering, firefighters find a body, a headless body, with its right forearm missing. News spreads quickly that Brother Terry, husband and father of four, is dead. And for several hours, they all very much believed this to be true. His family and the entire Emmanuel congregation, they all believed this to be true. But as it turns out, the body is not David Terry's. And if it isn't, then whose is it? What happened here? And where is Brother Terry? This is Heaven Bent. I'm Tara Jean Stevens. Season 3, Episode 1, The Emmanuel Church of Christ.
This season, I once again follow the spread of the Pentecostal spirit of revival, this time down to Tennessee, to reveal the shocking and thought-provoking details surrounding this horrific murder, all as we explore the greater Emmanuel Churches of Christ itself and the people who built it. Now I'd like you to meet Sharon K. Edwards. She grew up in Emmanuel's Shelbyville Church in Shelbyville, Tennessee. It's about an hour south of Nashville. And also, should Sharon, where should Sharon at? Stand up. That little voice saying, yeah, is Sharon. Let's give us a Sharon a good round of applause. And that's her dad, Pastor Ron Adams. He was and still is the pastor there. Sister Sharon has a, a, a very difficult task. She has to be a PK. That's, for those of you who don't know what that is, that's a preacher's kid. She catches grief from all sides. So, uh, but uh, we appreciate how she worked with the choir. And for each and every one of you choir... This audio was recorded in the 90s when Sharon was still a teenager in the church. And these kids have sang this song up here. What y'all think about that? Sharon doesn't go to church anymore. She's what they call a backslider, like me. She reached out after listening to my previous seasons of Heaven Bent because she thought we had a lot in common, both of us growing up in the Pentecostal church, but also because she wants to know the truth about her church's history. Mission accepted. And from my very first Google search, a couple top-line things have popped out loud and clear. Number one, Emmanuel Church of Christ, Oneness Pentecostal, the church in Nashville where the fire happened. It's part of this greater assembly of churches called Emmanuel Church of Christ, or Emmanuel Churches of Christ. The other thing of note about Emmanuel right off the bat is their extreme focus on first-century Christian traditions, like baptisms and communion. They describe it as being intentionally apostolic, which really involves them embodying the spiritual life and teachings of Jesus' earliest followers, something that's greatly influenced everything from their unique beliefs and spiritual practices to the way their entire organization is structured. You've got your apostles, your prophets, your evangelists, pastors, teachers, elders, deacons, and in Emmanuel's case, right on top, you've got the bishop overseer. They're in charge of everything and everyone. I remember the morning after it happened. Sharon was nine when Emmanuel's Nashville church went up in flames. And like all Emmanuel young people that week, she was at church camp. 
Sister Anti Water was in charge of the girls' dorm and she woke me up because she knew that I was related somehow to the family, even though I was not close to them. And I was a child, I was little. And she, she told me what had happened, that there had been a fire and that Brother David had died. Sharon is related to David Terry, our pastor in question, by marriage, on her mom's side. So his wife, Brenda, is Sharon's mom's first cousin. And at the time of the fire, when they first thought he was dead and later missing, David was not just any Emmanuel pastor. He was also the associate bishop overseer, another very prominent figure in the assembly. You know, reading these news clippings about David Terry with you is really the first time I've read them. It was kept from us so much. We don't talk about that. Sharon wants to know all the details about the David Terry story that were kept from her as a kid. And she wants to know more about the history of her church in general. I mean, she knows the church legend. But my research? It's revealing what really happened. Open. Okay, share screen. This is one of numerous video chats that I'll have with Sharon. Did it share the screen? Oh, there we go. Me up here in Vancouver, Canada, and her down there in Tennessee. Okay, so you can just see my whole screen now? I can. Okay, great. And I'm sharing my screen with her so she can see all the documents I've dug up about David Terry and the fascinating, nearly century-long history of her childhood church. I'll be showing her birth certificates, obituaries, and newspaper clippings. So this is obviously going to be like a journey together over the next few weeks or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, combining what I've learned through my research and what you know by heart. You've done so much work. Look at this. Oh, my God. Yeah, read this one. Many at revivals. Hartsville, Tennessee, November 28th. Large crowds are attending the revival meeting being conducted by Mrs. Nana May Joyner of Nashville. And in this episode, we'll use some of my earliest discoveries to start filling in the gaps of Sharon's memory and untangle the truth from what she was told. As Sharon mentioned, she was at church camp in June of 1987, one of, if not the most highly anticipated church events of the year for Sharon and her network of Emmanuel friends. I was just really excited, and I'd look out the window and be like, oh, look, there's so-and-so from Adarable, and oh, look, there's so-and-so from Huntland, and there's so-and-so from Rock Creek. And so it was cool to be able to hang out with other weirdos, I guess. Also with Sharon at camp that week was her sister, Dee Dee, and her second cousin, Amy. Amy is Pastor David Terry's daughter. She was about 12 that summer. And I remember where their bunk was in relation to mine, where where her, where Amy's bunk was, and there were people around her bunk. And then I just remember getting up and being very confused, and everybody had breakfast, I guess, and it was announced, I, I guess, at breakfast or in the morning devotional, because after breakfast we would have morning devotional, that we would all be going home. So we all just had to pack up, and they sent us all home. That's all I remember. So here we are, June 16th, 1987. So this is the day that you were woken up at church camp. This is what the papers were like oh, that okay. day when you guys were packing up all your stuff and heading home from camp. Body found in church. 
Nashville, Associated Press. Authorities are investigating the death of a Madison man whose decapitated and burned body was found by firefighters dousing an apparently arson caused blaze that gutted an East Nashville church, officials said. Police identified the man as James Chester Matheny, 32, who performed odd jobs at Emmanuel Church of Christ Oneness Pentecostal, where firefighters on Tuesday found his body on the second floor near some empty gasoline cans. Wow, that's, um, my stomach is in knots reading that. It, ugh. I think it was, it was just really scary to be young, so little that no one wanted to tell you anything. So the victim here, James Matheny, was the ex-husband of a woman from Emmanuel's Nashville congregation. I don't know much about him, which is really sad. Um, I know, at least I believe, I don't know that I know, I believe that he had um, like some uh, maybe issues with alcohol or something or was down on his luck. Totally true. Before he started working at the church, James Matheny had been sick, unemployed, and living in a shelter for months. And things get really gruesome here, but when they uncovered his 260-pound body in that fire, it was rolled up in a sanctuary carpet in the burnt-out attic. And it wasn't only his head that was missing, and his right forearm, which had been cut off below the elbow. Nashville's assistant police chief, Sherman Nickens, also said that large patches of skin had been, quote, surgically removed from both shoulders. And rumors were spreading like wildfire through the general public, but especially the entire Emmanuel family. Who could do such a thing? And where was Brother Terry? Metro Nashville Homicide Lieutenant R.C. Jackson said authorities have been unable to locate the church pastor, 44-year-old David Terry, since the blaze. The pastor's car was found abandoned Tuesday night, officials said. Officials also said that James Matheny was first identified by x-rays at the Metro Nashville Medical Examiner's Office. But the medical examiner himself shared why he was waiting to perform an autopsy. I was waiting to give the police officers the time to see if they could find the missing body parts, he said Tuesday nights. That is a very grim sentence. Whew. Assistant Police Chief Sherman Nickens said several gasoline cans were found near the body. The church smelled of fuel, leading investigators to believe the area around it may have been doused with gasoline and set aflame, he said. Whew. Nashville Metro Police Homicide Sergeant Luther Summers was not entirely forthcoming with details, but did confirm that investigators had not ruled out cult involvement. And the victim's family confirmed to the media that they believed it very much had something to do with a cult or some kind of occult activity. I even saw James Matheny's brother-in-law quoted in the Tennessean newspaper about how there are a lot of ways to simply kill someone without finding him without a head in a burning church. And it's important for me that you know I did connect with James Matheny's family about this season, and they were cordial, but declined to be a part of it. 
I did get the impression, though, that they are very much still a deeply religious family. Another detail is that Matheny had only been hired as church handyman just three months before the fire. And it was Brother Terry that hired him. He also counseled him on his drinking, got him into an apartment, and paid the first six weeks' rent. Because if there's anything a good pastor knows how to do, it's help people get back on their feet. Brother David Terry grew up and became a man in Emmanuel Church of Christ. As a young pastor, he worked alongside his father, John C. Terry. Together, they pastored several different Emmanuel congregations, one as far away as Florida. But in 1975, when the church's founding overseer passes away, John C. Terry, or Brother Johnny, as he was known, and his son David, were both called to Nashville to serve in much more prominent roles in the church. John C. Terry became Emmanuel's second-ever bishop overseer, but only until 1980 when he retires to care for his wife, David's mom, after she developed dementia. As for David, he would eventually become, as we know, associate bishop overseer, but at the time that he was called back to Nashville in 75, he was first dutifully called upon to take over as pastor of their flagship, Emmanuel Church. We know it as Emmanuel Church of Christ Oneness Pentecostal at 522 Woodland Street in East Nashville. Purpose built in 1951 by Emmanuel, it was the prettiest basement building we'd ever been in, according to an elder. And the Nashville Press even covered the sanctuary's grand opening and dedication in the local papers. The walls were made of mahogany from Southeast Asia, the high ceiling from natural redwood, the pews of dark oak, the carpet in red, and on the wall, above the altar, above the brand new baptistry, a backlit cross of gold. So, two days after the fire, two days since Pastor David Terry went missing, he suddenly turns up and immediately meets with investigators in his lawyer's office. Here's what he tells them. He says that he took his friend, James Matheny, the church handyman he'd hired a few months earlier, he tells them that he took him on an early morning fishing trip. And somehow, instead of fishing, he wound up in the church loft fighting for his life. He said everything went wrong when he made a comment about Matheny's drinking problem. And then Matheny responded by attacking him with a two-by-four. Brother Terry said this whole thing was self-defense. But if it was self-defense, why was James Matheny's body mutilated with precision? Why was his body rolled up in a sanctuary carpet? And how did the church catch fire? And if it wasn't self-defense, 
What other dark forces could have led David Terry to murder James Matheny, especially in this gruesome fashion? And how about this question? Where the hell did David Terry disappear to for two days? Where was Matheny's head and right arm? And why was his body stripped down to his underwear, but mysteriously still wearing a belt? These are all questions that will be answered by the end of this season. anything about his activities during the 48 hours he was missing. Here's Sharon again reading an article from the Tennessean paper about three days after the fire. He and his attorneys gave no explanation why he did so, but Terry's attorneys maintained he was cooperating with the investigation, even though he refused to answer their questions directly. While no charges have been filed, Terry was taken by police to the Metro Morgue at General Hospital yesterday afternoon for a forensic examination to determine if there was any evidence of Matheny's hair or skin under his fingernails. Police served Terry with a search warrant before taking him to the morgue. After the 90-minute test there and at General Hospital, police brought Terry back to his home. And they had the address there, 1713 Longcrest Drive, about 6.30 p.m. to search the premises. Oh, my goodness. And one thing that the local media got pretty worked up about at this point is that when Brother Terry suddenly shows up here, he looks really different from how he looked normally, like how he looked before he left. He still has his signature bushy mustache, but a toupee, that everyone knew he wore and that he'd been wearing for years, it was gone. He was now fully bald. His eyebrows were trimmed. He was also somehow tanned or tanned looking. And he was wearing khakis, which I guess was also highly unusual for him. And, oh yeah, he was also covered in bruises. He just came home. And literally, like, they thought he was dead, and then he came home, like, to their house. Not to jail. Home. That's crazy. Hours later, when the police confirmed that David was their primary suspect, he was described as showing no emotion whatsoever. And no perceivable sense of remorse for any possible wrongdoing. Less than 48 hours after that, David is formally charged with arson and murder. Terry's congregation is stunned and shocked to the point of almost disbelief at the charges that are leveled against their pastor. Nevertheless, the church stands by its minister. Until Brother Terry has been proven guilty, we shall continue to believe that he is innocent, Banks said. Banks. Rob Roy Banks. He was Emmanuel's bishop overseer at the time all of this went down. He assumed the position in 1980 after David Terry's dad, John C. Terry, you'll remember, suddenly stepped down to care for his wife. So I remember him a lot. Like, I I remember seeing him, talking to him a lot. He was this just nice old man uh, with a really deep southern accent. I remember that vividly. 
Bishop Overseer Banks told the media at the time that he knew of nothing but good that could be said of Brother Terry. He has been a faithful and dedicated man of God, a zealous worker in the congregation, and a dedicated family man. Although the congregation now supports Terry, Banks was quick to add that if the pastor is proven guilty, the church community will uphold the legal decision. You can be confident that if and when the truth is revealed, we shall be standing on the side of truth and right, he said. In the days immediately after the fire, Emmanuel's Nashville congregation temporarily met next door in the Church of the Nazarene to pray and to worship and to comfort each other, I'm sure. But when they did meet, the Nashville media was outside waiting for them. Members of the congregation quickly departed from the chapel after yesterday's service, some wiping tears from their eyes. Many of the some 50 churchgoers hastened to side exits to dodge the questions of waiting reporters. Those who were stopped for comment said that they were forbidden by banks to speak. Oh, okay. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. At nine years old, Sharon was pretty young when the fire happened, and the adults around her, her mom and dad especially, were obviously not going out of their way to keep the children abreast of all the gory details or the terrifying theories about a murderous cult being somehow involved. When I say we never talked about it, I mean never. It was taboo. You did not talk about it. And still today, Nobody wants to talk about it. Not with a nosy podcaster from Canada, anyway. Sharon's dad and others have declined to be interviewed for this season of Heaven Bent or have not responded to my reaching out at all, and that's fine. Sharon asking me to snoop around is invitation enough. And I'm cheering her on right now as she still plans to bring up all this stuff with her family herself. Maybe they'll be more open to talking about it with her now, now that she's grown up and so much time has passed. We'll see. In the meantime, in order to fully grasp what led to the events of 1987, I think we need to better understand the history of Emmanuel. And lucky for us, Sharon's here to help. Although she doesn't know a ton. 
I didn't preoccupy myself with learning the history, and that was not taught as much as the dogma. One thing she knows for sure is that, without a doubt, the most intriguing person we'll meet on this journey, definitely someone that Sharon is curious to learn more about, is Emmanuel's founding bishop overseer, who, despite all their successors being male, was a powerful and charismatic female preacher and popular traveling revivalist named Nina May Pierce. You're using the articulate diphthong, the um, I, you know, the two vowel diphthong, but around yeah. here it's a flattened I, so it's Nina. We don't, yes, that's a, not Nina. Yeah. There you go, so you, Nina. Yeah. Nina. <laughs> I'll work, I'll work yeah. on it. So Nina died in 75 before Sharon was born. And she doesn't know much about her life, especially her personal life, yet. But Sharon tells me that she does have vivid memories of Nina's presence in the church long after her death. When we'd go to the tabernacle, which was the place we had church camp, on the stage was a great big old picture of Nina Pierce. It was just known. She was the founder. So I knew she started a manual. In 1933. Yes, she did. Church and archival records show clearly that Nina, a woman, officially founded her own church in Kentucky. And along with a laser-focused group of her earliest followers, grew it to include 40 individual churches in at least five different states. Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, Illinois, and Florida. But more than a decade after Nina's death, the events of 1987 would cause church numbers to plummet. Today, there are only 14 Emmanuel Churches of Christ left, officially, including Sharon's Church in Shelbyville, where a lot of her extended family go as well. This is Sharon's aunt, Sister Sandy. Sister Sandy is Sharon's mom's sister. She's a gospel singer and worship leader, and I'll call her an Emmanuel Longhauler, because just like a lot of Sharon's family, she's been part of the assembly since she was a kid. And the bad press and stress of 87, it didn't scare her away. She knew what I'm just discovering, and that's that her family, Sharon's family, starting with her great granny Powell, helped build this church and grow Emmanuel and foster a cherished community. And for them, that's not something that's worth giving up on so easily.
Sister Sandy, man. Oh, oh my, my Sandy, God. I'm telling you, she can sing. She was over here at Christmas. She sat at my keyboard and we played and sang a little bit and she got kind of teary-eyed and she said that as she's gotten older, she can't hit any of the notes. Oh. So she said her hearing was kind of going and she yeah. couldn't hear the, the bass one time and she felt like she sang a wrong note. And I was like, so? I sing wrong, yeah. we sing wrong notes, but she was just, but that perfectionism, you know? Sure, well, when you were that great too. Today, Sister Sandy would be amongst the elder members of Emmanuel who personally remember Bishop Overseer Nina Pierce. For younger generations, though, like Sharon, well, they just have the stories they overheard or heard from the pulpit. Or sometimes, Sharon remembers hearing stories about Nina straight from her granny. Like this one about the time that Nina came down to Shelbyville from Nashville to attend a church wedding. She says, Sharn, like U H R N. Yeah, Sharn. Yeah. He said, Lord, Sharn, she, she was like, you'd have thought the Queen of England had showed up. She said that, that Nina Pierce was there. She said, Sharn, they had two big old chairs in the front. Get off my chair. Get, get off my chair. That is not your scratching post. Sorry. Sharon's cat momentarily interrupts her story about Nina, but I hope you're getting the picture here that Nina was a big deal, successful, and generally revered. I also invite you to picture a very well-put-together woman, well-dressed, with dark hair, a woman who later in life would become known for her great collection of furs and for traveling by limousine. But she says, yeah, they showed up and Lord Sue was running around hither, there, and yon, just making sure everything was all right. And they set her up at the front. I said, Granny, that's awfully inappropriate. She wasn't family. Like, why was she and her husband sitting up there in the front where the parents and grandparents are supposed to sit at a wedding? Now, I'm still getting to know Sharon and what she does and doesn't know about Nina and the rest of Emmanuel's history. So as I discover things of note, I'll definitely run them past her. Um, so I do want to really quickly ask you if you know that you are related to Nina by marriage. No. No? So it's super convoluted, but <laughs> check this out. Your mom's cousin's husband's brother married Nina's niece. In other words, David's brother, Fred, married Nina's niece, Shirley. <gasps> wow. Oh my God, that's crazy. Isn't that fun? And something else, perhaps more pertinent about Nina that I've dug up early on here is something that's definitely not in any official church records, but it is something that Sharon has, I guess, like sort of caught wind of over the years. And that's that Bishop Overseer Nina Pierce 
had been married before she married Charlie Pierce, Charlie Pierce being the man she was married to when she passed. I just know she was. You just know she was married. This is when I hit Sharon with a big reveal. So they got married in 1933, which was the same year that she founded Emmanuel in Kentucky. Um, Later on. She was 33 when she got married? That's awfully old. That's old maid age at that time. Yeah, isn't it? Isn't it? And that's why I have to reveal to you that she was married two times previously to that. Shut up. Your girl was married four times. Oh my God, God, this is amazing. Oh my God, shut up. So who was this woman, really? What did she believe? Why did people follow her? Large crowds are attending the revival meeting being conducted by Mrs. Nana May of Nashville. Wow. What do Emmanuel's church records say about Nina? And what juicy details did they leave out that I've uncovered? And yeah, what's up with all the ex-husbands? These two were like, as far as what I'm seeing, were an incredible team. We have to know why they broke up, Tara. That and more coming up on the next episode of Heaven Bent. Okay, so a movement has been started by a group of prominent citizens in Smith County. Uh, they were very open to women in leadership. You know, they kind of lift women up in that kind of ministry to show the rest of us, you know, there's nothing wrong with this. They, these these people are powerful leaders. I didn't question how I was raised. I don't, children just believe what they're told. So I believed what I was told. Also, still to come this season. Authorities are investigating the death of a Madison man whose decapitated and burned body was found by firefighters dousing an apparently arson caused blaze that gutted an East Nashville church. My stomach is in knots reading that. Fortunately, I've had interesting cases during my career as a lawyer. This was one of them. But I never, never saw him raise his voice or appear to be angry. He was likable, but had a depressive mood. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.